Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Isn't it good to be in God's house? Matthew chapter number four in verse I'm going to have to recover y'all now. Matthew 4 and verse 8. The Bible says, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and sheweth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Tonight, I would like to teach along this subject line, worship is a vital sign. Worship is a vital sign. All right? Can we pray together? Father, I come to you right now. Thankful, God, for your grouping of people, Lord, that have come together in your house tonight. God, I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, God, that we can come together, we can lift up your name. I pray, O Lord, anoint our hearts, anoint our spirits. Help us, God, today to lean in, God, to your word once again. Lord, let our attention, God, be set upon it. God, tonight, God, that we can feed from your word and it can add something, Lord, to our life and it can nourish us. God, I'll thank you and I'll praise you for it. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. Everyone say amen. 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 You may be seated tonight. Now, I know without doubt that we have, we have enough uh, first responders, volunteer firefighters, uh, people that serve in some capacity, people that were in nursing, maybe no longer in nursing, that could talk to me right now. What are some of the vital signs that an individual checks on a, uh, on a person? Can any of these people tell me? Hello, Sister Nadine. Pulse. Anything else? Blood pressure. Temperature. And we've heard some good ones. Anything else out of all that? Respiration. There we go. Vital signs. Now, I am not a nurse. I have, there's some other stuff. What, Fred, you got some other stuff going? Get your ABCs down. Um, concerning another thing with this, though, and from my understanding, I am not a nurse. I don't do first aid. I know how to put a Band-Aid on a finger. All right. But with that involved, I understand that if they will take these vital signs, and as they often do consistently, and they record this, that it can, to a certain degree, identify if someone is in a state of clinical deterioration, if there's something wrong, if there's a problem, if there's some type of sickness. And so my subject matter to you tonight is that worship concerning us on the spiritual realm is a vital sign. It can be an indication of something being well or it could indicate maybe some deterioration all by putting a hand, if you will, on worship. And I believe there should be much emphasis placed upon worship from our scripture reading alone because whenever we look at the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness that you can see in some of the harmony of the Gospels, uh, there are three temptations or testings that came against the Lord in that wilderness. And for one of those three to be concerning worship, for one of the three, 33%, a third of the temptation being concerning worship, or more importantly, the object of worship, 
And I believe that puts some emphasis then on this idea or how important that worship is because the adversary could depict a variety of things to use as a vice of temptation or testing. I would like I'd prefer the word testing here. No one can tempt God. No one has tempted God. Uh, the word actually is testing in the original. The test against the Lord. He could have used a myriad of things, myriad of tests. But one of those three that he used was temptation that he tried to use to approach the Lord in order to sway him. And so since he tried to change the object of Jesus Christ's worship, that's what he tried to do, change the object. Because you can't truly, and I've said this in times past, but indulge me, you cannot truly damn up worship. You cannot damn up worship. Inherently inside of mankind is this thing to worship, to praise, to bow down, amen, to something else. Uh, many years ago uh, in Vicksburg, Mississippi, there's a place where there is seemingly a dry channel and then the channel that the Mississippi River runs in. And they always said they, the Mississippi is so large, so vast, so strong and so mighty that it would have been impossible for them to particularly to dam up the Mississippi to quit its flow, the only thing they could do is divert its channel, divert its path because it was going to continue push, pushing and being powerful. And so there, there isn't a damning up of worship. There is just a, a, a different focus of allegiance of where you put your worship. Uh, so if, if, if we say, well, the, you know, some, well, they're just not worshiping like they used to. Well, they're just not worshiping what they used to worship. Because you're still going to be directing that towards something. There is still going to be an object. And so uh, to somehow get worship or to sway or mess with this idea of worship has been a, a ploy or desire of the enemy from the very beginning. And I have a lot of scripture tonight. Pastor's back. Hello. Isaiah chapter number 14 and verse number 13 uh, this, the setting of the scripture that is speaking about it is speaking about really the fall of the king of Babylon. That's really the setting of scripture here, the fall of the king of Babylon. But to describe his fall, they lean upon the fall of Lucifer. To describe the fall that the king of Babylon had, they describe then the fall of Lucifer. And so the Bible says in Isaiah 14 verse 13, For thou hast said in thine heart, speaking of Lucifer, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, which basically means the angels, above the angels. The stars of God are the angels. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend upon the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Illustrating the fall of Lucifer. Now notice, back and back up to verse 13, notice uh, the, the, the verbs or notice the words that are used to describe what's taking place here concerning Lucifer. He says, ascend above, set upon what? A high place, the mount of the congregation. Zion, verse number 14, again using the description of ascend in so much he even says to be like the most high God. What Lucifer really was doing here he desired to get to a place and he desired, even with Jesus Christ, he desired to receive what he had once gave. The Bible says that all the instruments and the tablets were inside of him. He was, if you will, an individual, a cherub that covereth, that was the musical aspect of heaven. And so he, though, got to a place that he desired to receive what he gave. He desired worship. 
Amen. And so with that in mind, he's ascending, he's exalting, he's wanting to be superior, he's wanting to be like or even above, if you will, the Most High God. And why you then term that as worship? Because worship in its most base form of interpretation is this. Worship is prostration. Being prostrate before the Lord. Uh, the Old Testament idea was to be prostrate before the Lord. Notice the request of Satan to Jesus. He says, if thou wilt what? Fall down and worship me. The Old Testament word that was translated worship means this. To depress, that's worship. To bow down, that's worship. To prostrate, that is to worship. In Exodus 4, 31, it's interpreted in this setting of Scripture, bowed their heads and worship. 94 other places of Scripture, it's interpreted as that. The depressing, the bowing down, the prostrating before the Lord. Amen. And so it, you, you, it's wherever it's set in context that illustrates the idea if it's a literal bowing over of the physical body and getting on the ground or if it's just an emotion that's within. Uh, you know, you, you, can be standing, you can be standing tall and be bowed over in your spirit. You know. Uh, or you can also be bowed over in your spirit and sometimes be standing, or, or bowed over in the physical body and sometimes be standing tall in your spirit. But we're, we're, you know, we're talking about a harmony between the physical and the spiritual. And so uh, we understand this idea of being bowed over, this prostration, being equal to worship in the Old Testament, even so much that the great patriarch Jacob, whenever he's in his elderly years, and life has had its toll upon him, and he's just prior, prior to dying, really the setting of Scripture is, uh, unable maybe because of his physical body, some of you all understand, physical body not being able to kneel or not being able to bow over, but the Bible takes special note to exclaim that he leaned. He had a staff. He leaned upon his staff and worshiped. Worship God. He said, I can't do what I used to do, but I'm still going to have some type of posture that indicates some reverence and some worship unto the Lord. And so he leaned upon the top of his staff and he worshiped yet in his dying hour. Customarily in Old Testament times, customs, uh, whenever two individuals meet, I know today, you know, we meet and we shake hands. How you doing? Yeah, my name's Solo. Or, or other countries, uh, uh, other cultures, they both might bow. Uh, but uh, in the culture of their day, whenever two people met, both, uh, it wasn't customary for shaking of hands, it was customary for a bow, but both parties would not bow. It was the one of lesser authority and lesser position. Now, you all having too much fun up there. Lesser authority and lesser position that would bow to the other. Listen, because simply in the bowing or in the prostrating oneself, you were declaring that the other was superior. So whenever two parties came together, they had to take a self-evaluation real quick. Who's the greater of the two? Who's the most superior of the two? Because the one who does the bowing is the one that's declaring the other is more superior. And so whenever we have our interchange, and our intersection between us and God, both cannot bow. Whenever we do the bowing, which is our worshiping, our prostrating ourselves before the Lord, by that worship, we're exclaiming, God, you're superior. You have more authority. 
You have more power. You have more clout. And so to think of the reverse of that, the refusal to bow, or could I say the refusal to prostrate yourself or the refusal to worship is then setting oneself up as superior. As scripture tells us in Philippians 2.9 that Jesus Christ is highly exalted. It says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. Jesus Christ is highly exalted. And so we get this in our mind. How can you exalt something higher than being highly exalted? I mean, how can something be exalted any higher when they're at the apex of the height of exaltation? Brother, brother, Tyler, can you help me tonight? I know this, now just you have to use your imagination here for a moment. Not because it's Tyler either. But this is Jesus. This level right here, we're going to assume for all other purposes, this level right here is the highly exalted level. We're going to assume that there is no other level higher than that in this place. All right? Okay? There's no other level higher than this place. This is Jesus Christ. He's highly exalted. Man, he, that's as high as you can go. How can I, by any means, exalt him any higher? How can I lift him up any higher? And the answer is in this. The only way to exalt him higher in relationship to me is if I position myself lower. Amen. If he's highly exalted, the only way in relationship to me that he can get any higher is if I place myself lower. And that is the essence of what worship is all about. It isn't necessarily about what you are esteeming higher, but it's of you humbling yourself lower than where he already resides. I mean, we, we, you and be seeing, brother, if we get an idea, man, we got to lift him up. Let's get God higher. Man, and maybe we struggle sometimes with that. It's not, you can't get him any higher per se than he is, but you can stoop a little lower where you are and fall prostrate before the Lord, humble yourself, bow down, and that's worship. That's worship. Amen. Can't necessarily esteem him, but, but I can humble myself in relationship to him. Humble myself in relationship with him. And so there's no wonder then in Scripture that, that God describes himself in the Psalms at a couple of various places in Scripture. God describes himself as being nigh. Nigh is the terminology he reads. He, 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 he uses or, or near uh, he, the Bible describes God as not despising and what he is near and what he's not despising are people that are of a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart the Bible says God will not despise or that he draws nigh unto that type of person amen why because that position of being broken that position of being a broken and a contrite spirit indicates an attitude and action of worship. An attitude and action of worship that says you're superior, you're bigger, you're grander, amen. And God cannot but draw nigh to something like that. God cannot but not despise something like that. The Bible even plainly says in James 4 and also in 1 Peter 5 that God gives particularly grace, but God gives toward the humble, the humble and he resisteth the proud. 
God gives toward those who prostrate themselves before Him. Blessings flow. Gifts flow from God to those who prostrate, those who worship, if you will, the Lord. John the Baptist understood his role well. The forerunner of Jesus Christ. A lot of clout bringing the message of repentance and remission of sins. But when they asked him, art thou the Christ? He plainly told them. He said, I'm not going there. I know Lucifer. He done tried that one. He said, I am not the Christ. He said, but in John 3.30, he said, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase. Yeah, he must increase. How's that going to happen, John? Because I'm going to decrease. He might say, how's that going to happen? How's the Lord going to increase, John? Because I'm going to worship him. I'm going to bow down to him and say he's superior. What's that going to do, John? That's going to mean every follower that's following John the Baptist, when they see him bow down to him, they're saying, well, if he's superior to John, then he's the one we worship. He's the one that we serve. He's the one that we obey. Amen. This is who we bow down to. The temptation... This last temptation, at least in Mark, it's the last. It's not always in that order in the harmony of the Gospels. But this temptation, this test, is very revealing, a revealing insight into Satan's heart. Because there is, there is an exchange or a little trade-off that he's posing here. And that is, you worship me, Jesus, and I'll give you kingdoms of the world and the glory thereof. We get a little insight into the heart if there is such a thing on Satan. <laughs> the heart of Satan. <laughs> and that is worship and recognition for himself was more precious to him than the possession of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 19, in the King James Version, it says, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness, in the King James. Let me read it from uh, the last part, the whole world lieth in wickedness from three other versions. The Amplified says it like this, the whole world around us is under the power of the evil one. God's word, translation says it like this, that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The Living Bible says it like this, that all the rest of the world around us is under Satan's power and control. He's been posing scripture as the prince and power of the air. Amen. So he does have some power in and over the world. Now we know clearly from the story in the book of Job that the power that the devil has, the power that the enemy has, to control and power in the world is a delegated power. It's not a power, it's not an absolute power. It's a delegated power that's managed by God. Yeah, he, he rations, God's rationing power to the devil, the only power that he has in this world he gets from God. And so although he may claim power and control of the world, which is true, that's regulated by the hand of God. That's regulated by the power of God. He does not have absolute power. And so in the temptation, nevertheless, the, this temptation tells us that Satan desires to pervert worship. He would rather pervert worship than to receive even delegated power from God to usurp that and control the world. Now, in places in the scripture 
we read, here is the calamity of the Old Testament Scripture. In Scripture, the people oftentimes are described as, as they were worshiping the works, this is the terminology, the works of their own hands. And it goes serve the reason. God's a wood, God's a stone, God's a metal. They didn't just appear. They had to be fashioned. They had to be created. They were created by the hands of men. So whenever they went to worship these gods, they were in essence worshiping something that was the works of their very own hands. And so whenever they made their God, they made their God to please them. All right? They made their God the way, man, that looked, man, I think he needs a little, you know, make it to suit them. And so they were, work, they were worshiping something of their own hands, or if I could say, they were worshiping something that pleased them. Amen? Worshiping something that they had devised. Amen? And so that is the means in which the adversary wishes to come in. He doesn't want us to worship the one true God. He'd rather worship us, worship us worship inventions of our own hands, more importantly, things that please us. Uh-huh. Things that please us, things that fancy us. Things that stroke us where we like stroked. Pet us where we like pet. Soothe us where we like soothe. He would rather us to be pleased, to worship whatever pleases us. I, I'm not stepping out on a limb here tonight, but I believe this emphatically even through Scripture, that whenever the object of our worship is anything different than God, the one true God, it ceases to be truly classified as worship, but more importantly, it has become idolatry. Because he even said in his response to the enemy, Serve him only. Because there's only one God that's deserving of true worship, of worshiping in spirit and truth, the one true God. To worship anything else outside of this one true God is to put it above in a level of superiority to that God. Meaning then that since there is no other, you got something in between you and God. It's an idol. It's a falsehood. It has... Amen. And so, so really what the enemy is doing, whenever he wants us to change the object of our worship, he wants us to fall in a spirit of idolatry. Yes, a spirit of adultery. Because if I'm not prostrating myself before the Lord and bowing myself before the Lord, then there must be something else in my life that I'm bowing before and prostrating before. And if he's the only God that's deserving of all honor and worship and I have diverted that somewhere else, I have taken on myself the spirit of adultery. I've said I believe one God with my lips, but my actions testify greatly different. Amen. So I pose the question, why then? Why then is our worship such a vital sign of our spiritual health? Again, and this, this is to revere anything above God, to worship it, to bow before it, to prostrate before it, to do that. What Satan has been working on from the beginning of time, the Bible says the spirit of this is already at work in our world today. This will be the guise of the Antichrist. 
Listen to me, folks. This will be the guise of the Antichrist, also known as the son of perdition. The Bible says that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. They spoke in their gospel in that day. And if it was already at work in that day, how much more so? Is it even at work in our day? And the Antichrist or the spirit, Antichrist says it all, Antichrist. <laughs> all right? Says it all. The spirit of the Antichrist is this found in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. The Thessalonian church had thought that they had already missed the rapture. The end of the world has come. And Paul began to describe them. Hey, you, you need to, here are some things you need to look for. You know when the world's going to come to an end. First of all, there's going to be a falling away first. I'm not talking about people just backsliding here and there. He goes on to explain people that knew the truth that go totally against it and embrace some heaping of themselves. Teacher, he begins to describe. There's going to be a falling away. He said, but the second sign that you know it will be coming about is that the son of perdition will be revealed. The Antichrist. He will be revealed. And in speaking of the Antichrist here in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, speaking of him, that son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself, look now, above all that is called God, what is that? That's making him superior. Although he's not. Making himself to appear superior. Why? Because that which is most superior gets the worship. Someone hear me right now? And he said, all that is called God, that is worship. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In other words, he's coming under the guise that he is superior. He's the Almighty, that he is God. And in that day, the Antichrist, not just the spirit of it, but the full-blown Antichrist is going to try to be diverting the worship of the people, amen, to himself. Brother McGee, then why is it so important that worship is a vital sign? Because that spirit is already at work in the present-day church and the present-day world. Little by little, here little, there little. He's getting after the souls and the saints of the people, and he's trying to divert your worship. Why? Because when the Antichrist shows up, if he can get you compromised on small things, he'll get you compromising on big things. And that day, he's setting you up for failure. He's setting you up for demise. I cannot refuse to prostrate and bow down and worship him. He set you up. If he can get you comfortable not bowing before God and worshiping God now, don't you think if you're not going to be able to stand now that you'll be able to stand then? The pressure's just going to get stronger. You're just going to have less of a desire to do what you have a desire not so. Mm -hmm. You have problems with worship right now. It's not going to get easier for you to want to do that. It'll be worse. It won't just be the spirit of the Antichrist. It'll be the Antichrist. But the devil from the very beginning has been setting this up from his very fall. From the very fall. Amen. He's been setting it up trying to divert people's worship. Trying to divert that attention. Why? Because he knows what's coming down the pike. He knows there's going to be this spirit. He's the one that's behind it all. He gives power to the beast and power to the Antichrist. He under, the power that's delegated to him, he delegates to others. And he's looking for the fall of humanity, the fall of the church, the fall even of the saints the most elect if possible so you why do you say that Brother McGee and I, listen I'm trying to encourage you but whenever you come to service and we talk about worship I'm not to clap hands on that's fine and we'll get into later this, this distinguishing mark between worship and praise but I'm talking about lowering yourself 
that he'll be in, in, in relationship to you more exalted. Humbling yourself that in relationship to you, he is more, not allowing anything else to take that platform. Not falling into a spirit of adultery and causing something to be more superior than your God in your life. Because all it is is a trench and a path for the Antichrist to come in, the Bible says, with all deceivableness and deceive you. And he is a master deceiver. Antichrist will be. The Bible says that he'll have signs and he'll have wonders. Uh-huh. And so if you're going to say, well, it's of God because there was a miracle, or there was a God because there was a sign, or it's God because it's increasing, you can't necessarily use that as a laundry list to say it's of God because he's going to counterfeit and do some of the very same things that you're going to see. You're going to have to discern the spirit and know which is truth and which is error. Uh-huh. And everything that confesses that Jesus Christ is God and he came in the flesh is of God. But that which don't is not of God. That's what the scripture says. My God, I feel in the Holy Ghost in this place. It's a vital sign to our spiritual health because it's not just a determiner for now. It's a, determina a determiner for later as well. Amen. He will he'll manifest himself in power, signs, lying wonders, the Bible says. And that the enemy thought it enough, enough importance to attack Jesus with it, then it's definitely important enough now to still assault the church with to disengage, to refuse, to turn off that venue of worship toward the object that should be worshipped, God. Because Matthew 3, 4, 3 basically said in this wilderness temptation, he said, and when the tempter came. I know we do this all the time, but I bear that it's absolutely important we do it again. It is not about a question if the tempter came. It's when the tempter came. It's not if the subject matter of your worship, if it's going to, if you're going to be subjected to somewhat of a compromise, you're going to be subjected to some type of a compromise. And the thing is, will you stand, or rather maybe we should say it like this, will you bow? Amen. Now, my opinion, there are some loopholes in the devil's persuasion in this wilderness journey. Some loopholes of him asking for the worship toward himself and that he would give Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Firstly being this, so Satan was going to give Jesus something he didn't have to give? I understand. His power and his control was delegated power and control that was given to him by God who was in Christ. And he says, I'm going to give you all of this as though he was so possessor and commander of it all. I'll give you all this in the glory of it when that little thing you have management over anyway didn't come from you. It's not absolute power of your own. So you're telling me you're going to give him something that you didn't have to give? Amen. Secondly, he was going to give Jesus something he already had. <laughs> If we look through the eyes that God was in Christ, he was going to give something to Jesus that he already had. The Lord, when speaking to David, the Lord posed this when speaking to David in Psalms 2 and verse number 8. The Lord is telling to David, look what he says to David. This is the Lord now. He said, ask of me, ask of me, David, and I shall give thee what? The heathen. for thine. How can you do that, God? Because I already got them. 
and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. How can you do that, God? Because I already got them. He's stupid, but he pulls that same thing over our eyes oftentimes. He's promising to give you something that you, he doesn't have himself, and he's promising to give you something that you already got. Well, that came, that came from me. <laughs> I'm going to lay off the desserts, I guess. You got to be known for something. I, didn't, I don't have a, a handkerchief up here. Let me tell you something. <clears throat> Probably more than anything, people don't know me for my preaching or preaching style. All they know is that I sweat a lot. That's probably what came to me more than any time at the general conference. I tell you what, boy, you sure do sweat. They might not heard a thing I said, but they might have been counting the drops of sweat coming off my ears and nose. <clears throat> Amen. The Gospel of John, the terminology often used for the devil is the prince of the world the gospel of John particularly. Let me ask you this, the prince of the world. That's what he's often termed in the gospel of John. What can the prince of the world give to the king of the world? A prince is underneath the king. What can the prince of the world give the king of the world that he doesn't already have? Huh? <laughs> so, the devil though, in, through this eye's view, the devil offered Jesus as a man. Let's consider it like that. Viewing Jesus as a man, he, which he was. But the devil offered Jesus as a man the kingdom. Note very importantly, the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom, but without the cross. Probably one of the greater, greater testings of his day and our day is to get everything that you want without the sacrifice. Jesus, the kingdom of the world, you're going to the cross for the sake of humanity in the world as a man. Going to the cross for that. He says, I'm going to give you the same thing, but we're just going to subtract the whole intersection of the cross from the picture. And the only means of exchange that I need from you in order to make that happen, or at least as it was posed, is for you to worship. But let's consider, what if... There was worship that happened. The moment that he would have worshipped, he would have become the servant of another. He would have abdicated his throne. Let me tell you something. Satan, his ploys, whenever he comes to us with those type of temptations and he comes toe-to-toe with us on our worship to God in each service or just in our life, his plan is always if he can somehow make us circumvent the cross. But if we as a people ever circumvent the cross, we cease to be his people. Somebody hear me right now. Matthew 4.10. You're going to remember like this, 4.10 shotgun, all right? Matthew 4.10. 4.10 is the shotgun passage of worship. Amen. Jesus revealed. He revealed in his response back to the devil why the devil had such interest in this idea of worship. The Lord's response back to him in 410 Shotgun Matthew. All right. Is thou... He's like, he even laughed at that. All right. He's not too uptight for the wedding day. Hallelujah. Thou shalt, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Within that statement, 
are two basic truths. You will worship what you serve and you will serve what you worship. Why is worship such a vital? Why is that such an importance to the enemy? Because if he can distract worship from where it should be, whatever you do worship or idolatrize, that's a made up word by the way, whatever you do concerning that, then that is what you will serve. That's what you'll give your allegiance to. That's what you will sell out to. And so the object, listen very closely, the object then of our worship becomes the direction of our service. The object of our worship becomes the direction of our service. It's what we yield ourselves to. In John 4, 22, the woman at the well, popular setting of Scripture, John 4, 22, Jesus speaking to the woman said, Ye worship, ye know not what. He says, We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Listen, he says, Ye worship, ye know not what. Lady at the well. You have an unknown, per se, object of worship. And when you have an unknown object of worship, you have directionless service. The success at the well, listen to me. The success at the well with what happened with the lady at the well, with her past, all of that that took place, no doubt I deemed that the success happened and was accomplished. Firstly, well, she's dealing with Jesus. You know, that's a pretty hard guy to go up against. You know, She's dealing with Jesus. But I also believe part of the success for what happened at the well is because this lady didn't even have a sure object of worship. And an unsettled object of worship. She didn't have no direction. And so when something stepped into her life that provided the direction, it provided an object of worship as well. Now listen to me. That's grand for her at the well. But just as much as that can be a blessing in that circumstance, it can also be a detriment in our life if the enemy would enter in at the same juncture and we have no sure object of worship and therefore no true direction of service and he steps in and as a result of giving direction, although it may be false, we latch on to an object of worship. Is someone following? I'm, I'm trying to go slow. I'll back it up. We'll reverse it. We'll make a rut in the sand. Buy the CD. Listen to it on podcast. It was the benefit there, but maybe not the benefit in all cases. Why? Because you need to be founded on what you're worshiping and who you're serving. Amen. You don't need to be aimlessly just filling that out and like taking these little trial 30-day runs. On this pleasure and that pleasure, whatever suits you and comforts you. No, 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 no. We don't need that. The Apostle Paul was so appalled, no no pun intended, but he was so appalled in Acts 17 because the Bible says he was traveling through Athens. He came to the climax of Mars Hill, and as he passed through there, man, they have altars to this God, that God, XYZ God, ABC God, all these different gods. And in Acts 17, 23, the Bible says, uh, it says, For as I pass by and behold your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, Dec- him declare I unto you. He told the lady, he told the lady, well, he said, you don't, you don't know, you don't know what you worship. Let me further say, 
concerning worship. Worship should be tied to who and what, to knowing who and what you worship. He said, you don't know who you worship, what you worship. Worship should be tied to a what. It should be tied to a who. Knowing who, knowing what. And so he's passing through this place and he sees this altar to an unknown God. I don't know if they make sacrifices there. Let worship happen there. But they didn't know the who of the altar. They didn't know the what of the altar. And so he chastises these men of Athens there on Mars Hill because they had an altar erected to the unknown God. And notice his description of their activity. He says, ye ignorantly, ye ignorantly worship. But what does he go on to say? He says, him declare I unto you. He says, I want you to know who and what you may be worshiping. And you can read the next several verses, nine or so verses of Scripture in Acts chapter 17 after verse 23. And you can read it through. And you know what Paul declares in those next nine verses? Paul declares unto them the nature of God. He declares unto them the habitation of God. He declares unto them the dominion of God. He declares unto them the created work of God. He declares unto them that God is accessible to them. He declares unto them that God wants them to repent. He declares unto them that God's going to judge the world. He declares unto them that that same Jesus that was buried, he also resurrected. What are you doing, Paul? I want people to know who and what they're worshiping. If you're going to worship, know what you worship. If you're going to worship, know who you worship. Because our worship is greatly derived from knowing who or what it is we worship. And the reason why some people have a problem with worship is because they've never just spent some time to finding out who it is or what it is they're worshiping. The reason why some people can be moved off the platform of worship because they've not settled it in their heart yet that he is the superior. It's tied in knowing him, knowing he's God, knowing he's alone, knowing that he received no counsel from another. There's not another beside him or has any comparison with him. He's all God all by himself. When you understand his superiority, you won't have no problem prostrating yourself and bowing when you understand where he really is in life. When you understand all the other things of this world have no means of comparison to him, it's no problem to keeping him priority, keeping him number one. But you got to get knowledge of God. You got to know him. We got to know him. So he says all this stuff. He, what's he doing? I mean, he's trying to educate them on their ignorant worship. Because you can't, you can't appropriately worship a God you don't know. You can't appropriately do that. In Deuteronomy chapter number six, verse number one, keep track of time here. Deuteronomy, y'all, y'all, some of y'all don't have work tomorrow. You're good. You're good. We're good. Some still do though, but I know how that goes. Now let's set the setting here. In Deuteronomy chapter number five, has just been a re-enlistment, a re-recording, if you will, a bringing to the mind of the people of the commandments of the Lord. All right. They're listed again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I know in, back in Exodus 20, we see the giving of the Ten Commandments and they're, listing, they're listed again in Deuteronomy chapter number 5. They're relisting. So he has just listed the commandments, if you will, and the statutes and the judgments. He's just done all this. And so he follows it up with Deuteronomy 6. And he says, now these are the commandments. So he's referring to what he's just been through. Okay, Moses has just went through these things all over again for the people. 
He says, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whether ye go to possess it. Verse number two, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Verse number three, hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. So you're saying, man, keep these commandments, keep these judgments, keep these statutes, you and your children and everybody that follows after you. And then he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and all thy soul and with all thy might. He says, keep the keep the judgments, keep the commandments, keep all these things. But then he emphasizes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, which was the Shema in Scripture. It's that which Jewish parents taught to their children. One of the first parts of Scripture they taught to their children. Oftentimes, the very first thing that a Jewish child heard when it came out of the womb in Hebrew was, Hear, O Israel. They told this to, as soon as they asked, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord they wanted them to know who God was because everything else really in our Christian life derives and comes from knowing who he is our worship our giving our prayer our holiness and our standards all of that are a byproduct of knowing who God is and many times trouble in any of those areas is not a solid knowledge of knowing who he is. And so they said, we got to get this right. So in Deuteronomy 5, he reaffirmed all these commandments. And so in Deuteronomy 6, he emphasized that those commandments and statutes are to be done. He uses the word done. They're to be kept. They are to be observed. But to ensure the doing of it, to ensure the service, mm-hmm, to ensure yielding and being obedient to the service of it. He inspired in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you will love him with all of your heart, your soul, and your might. Because we serve who we worship, but we will worship who we know. We serve who we worship, but we will worship who we know. You gotta know. Romans 10, that was the, the, great, the great passage of Romans 10 when it was speaking of people that said, just call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. But it goes on asking the question, how can they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? How can he preach except he be sent? What are you saying? He's saying they gotta know something about who they're gonna call upon. They got to know something about who they're going to worship. And the more you acquaint yourself with knowing God, the more you'll find yourself worshiping God. Because you'll serve, the more you'll find yourself obeying God. The more you'll sign yourself keeping commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Because you will serve what you will worship, but you will only worship what you know. Someone say amen. You're hanging tight. Fireworks ain't coming yet. You're good. You know, we like, does anybody like 
receiving gifts? Anybody? Nobody. Okay. Jennifer Pascal raised her hand. It's only because her wedding's coming up. She did. I want you to know. Right. I, don't know, I, like to, I like to give gifts. My own wife, she loves to give gifts. It's because she likes to purchase things, and she likes It's a euphoria. It's a euphoria. I got this gift for so-and-so, and I also picked up this for myself. No. But it would seem the giving of gifts seemed to stem from our love for those who we care about very deeply. You give gift because you love someone so very deeply. And so when we start talking about worship, we got to talk about giving. And when we talk about worship and giving, we've got to talk about love. Because love and giving and worship all go hand in hand. They almost seem to be connected. If I might even say they are totally inseparable. Worship and giving and love. Because love is the foundational root for giving and worship. Amen. A few years ago, I preached a, a message here at our church entitled Love to Give. And my simple statement was this, that in John three sixteen, God said God so loved the world that he gave. And so his giving was a byproduct of the love that he had. So giving begins with love. And also worship begins with love. Amen. The vitals of a Christian life are, you know, we have respiratory and all this other stuff in the natural world. But the vitals of a Christian life, we might... There's probably more than four, all right, for the Christian, uh, the vitals. But some of them that we might lump together right here is what we give to, what we worship, what we serve. Amen. What we give to, what we worship, what we serve the most, what we give to the most, what we worship the most, what we serve the most is be what we love the most. The Bible says in Matthew 2, 11, let's go to December. It's, it's just around the corner, folks. In Matthew 2, 11, the Bible says, And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary speaking of the wise men, his mother. They fell down. What's happening here? This is awesome. What's the basic worship? Prostration, bowing down. Two intersections meet what? Somebody's got to lower themselves before the other. No, both. And here's a blabbering baby with drool coming out the edge of its mouth. And three, not three, but wise men that come here, and what are they doing? They're falling down. Why? Because at this intersection, they say, there's something superior right here. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the wise men came from the east. They come to Jerusalem. They're inquiring about the king of the Jews that is born. Amen. The prophets of old have spoke about this. We have seen his star in the sky. And what is their desire? Their desire is to worship him. And whenever they get to where he is, they do just that. They prostrate themselves. They fall down. They worship him. But not coincidentally. As they fall down and worship the conjunction and it says, and when they had opened their treasures. And we say it all times that let's just continue with our worship and giving. It is absolutely just that. They are falling down, they're worshiping and they're giving of their treasures. It's all a part of worship. And they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So accompanying their worship was the gifts that they offered from their treasures. It would seem as though their worship and their offering are happening simultaneously. 
Now this is, considered for a moment, they are paying homage and treasure and worship to someone that they presume to be the future king based upon the prophecies of the prophets. They're presuming that because of the signs that was declared that should precede him, that this is the one. They're doing that off what they presume and the interpretation of the signs. But ladies and gentlemen, we're at an hour that we know who he is. There's no presumption. There's no guessing of interpreting the signs. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But let us have the same type of passion with our worship and our giving of gifts when they presumed it and we know it. Without a shadow of a doubt. I close with this if you'll stand with me. Caution was presented. I don't know if I sent that up there, Sister McGee, but I think I did. Deuteronomy 6 and 12. That's later in the book of Deuteronomy there. Here is, here is the admonition, the caution, if you will. He stated to them about the Lord is God. He told them about teaching them those commandments and statutes when they rise up, when they go to bed, all this stuff. Tell it to your children. Put it on the doorpost. Put it in the phylacteries on your heart, between your eyes, and all this stuff. But he said in verse 12, he said, Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord. Beware lest thou forget the Lord. Because if you do that, there's a negative, there's, your vitals are going to be all over the charts. Because if you don't know him, you don't know him. He says it's going to affect your giving. If you don't truly know him, it's going to affect your worship. If you forget who he is, you allow something else to take its place. It will impact your service. And those vitals are going to be speak something else than something that's healthy. It will speak of something that's deteriorating. Amen. Worship then, I state emphatically tonight, is a vital sign for the church. Please don't ride the pony of the refusal of worship now. Because you might be riding the dragon of the refusal of worship later in this life. When that spirit is not just a spirit, but it is the Antichrist, the son of perdition. Can we close our eyes in this place tonight? Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.